0: Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome to my favorite time of the week. Um, As part of the Inspiring Leadership series and this podcast, I'm very lucky to have Richard Fanning with me, who is a senior advisor at Control Risk and was the former CEO for many years. And Richard, you're now on a journey to become a leadership coach, you've been training yourself at that, and also sort of mentor and advisor to senior executives. That's right. Richard, great having you along. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, Tell me a bit about sort of, you know, your your journey, your life history, really.
1: A bit of a story. Just give us a bit of a a flavour of you. Right. So I found myself for over 25 years working in the risk industry at Control Risks. Um, It was an unexpected destination for me Um, growing up in the 1960s and 1970s in Doncaster, in the north of England, uh, your horizons were such that you would never, in your wildest dreams, expect to be running the kind of company that you didn't even know existed. Hmm. Um, so uh, I always, when my parents were still with us, I always had enormous difficulty explaining to them what I did for a living. Yeah, I think. How, that, how would you describe it to your parents or somebody else's parents? Uh, I would have to explain that there's lots of strange things happening in the world, that it's a complicated, difficult, unpredictable world and companies need to be prepared for all sorts of eventualities, and that was that was my job. Yeah. And my uh, my Northern Irish stroke Yorkshire father would scratch his head with bemusement that somebody would earn their living doing that. Um, but on the basis, I was managing to sort of feed myself, my wife and my children. He probably thought, there must be something. There must be something in it because... Uh, uh, the lad's not starving. So, uh, <laughs> uh,
0: uh, Yeah, anyway, it... Uh, but but it, just staying with your father for a moment. I mean, father and mother, I mean, I know both mine were influential, yeah. even from beyond the grave with my father. But um, what was it that they... Values and leadership traits that you've been using now that really came from them or any other relations that you had? What what what, what were their upbringing? What well, were my, their, their values? Well, yeah,
1: my parents... Um, were both born into um, kind of semi poverty and not extreme poverty, but they were both born poor, um, uh, had very little secondary education. Both left school. I think my mother when she was thirteen, hmm. maybe. My father just after his fourteenth birthday. Wow. Um, and my father went off to off to uh, off to war. Really? and came back and married my mother and had my brother and sister then had me and sort of made made good as it were um, what was his part of the forces that he was he in? was in bomber command He was uh, oh, right. in lancaster crew so and he lived that's yeah, amazing he lived yeah. so many of his peers yeah. didn't so, make it so limits. yes no by the age of uh, and it was all you know by the time he wasn't quite 20 and it was all over and mm. he'd had kind of more Experience than one would ever imagine possible probably in that time. Yeah. But the most remarkable thing about him was he never talked about that. Yeah uh, Not because it was necessarily hugely traumatic, although I suspect mm. there, there were moments um, when you kind of had to uh, really summon your inner resilience to survive it. Uh, he just had a philosophy that life was about the future. Yeah. And it was about what you did next, not what you've already done. And I hope he might have passed that on to me a bit. Yeah. Um, but he was a painter and decorator, yeah. and he kind of made good and had his own business and educated his children and sort of took his family from uh, on a you know on a on a serious. A serious journey in terms of raising all of our prospects and, mm. and well-being. Um, in terms of his leadership style as a businessman, I have done my level best not to emulate. <laughs>
0: <What> <laughs> there is something
1: style? about that Protestant Northern Irish Yorkshire style. Uh, mean and canny. Uh, I was Yorkshire <laughs> and mean, Scott. Mean yeah. and canny. Uh, but, uh, exactly that. Uh, that I have done my level best to to kind of yeah. to swerve and sidestep yeah. that so um no that that would uh, that would not go down well in the modern workplace, I have to say yeah um so it has been it has been mm. something of a journey uh, uh from where my family started um, I was the first person in my family to to go to university and all of that not were they proud of you for that ah, you, you, I read, so. you read history at Bristol yeah, I think so I think they probably. They probably were, but you know, we grew up in an environment where uh, people were very undemonstrative about yeah. about that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. Uh, with a, a, a
0: mother who brought me up in Yorkshire, I remember being terribly chuffed about something I'd done, achieved, and she went, "Yes, dear, very nice." And 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 what else has happened in your day? You yeah. know, like you just you just didn't big up yourself, mm. and and if you did, you know. Your head would get too swollen, mm. and they would get too big for your boots mm. from you, and
1: they'd, they'd bring you down a bit. They mm. you know, just to keep your modesty and yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's hardwired, I think now. Um, but if you fast forward uh, to uh, the 1990s, I found myself at control risks in this strange uh, at the at the time kind of newly emerging form of consultancy and business advice of helping organisations deal with all the range of risks that a modern corporation with global ambitions faces and the inevitable pitfalls and crises that affect companies and senior executives and having the the talent and skills in the organisation to be able to help people both anticipate um, what might might afflict them as they travel the world trying to trying to do business and also being there to help them when something goes wrong. And,
0: and you know, you, you've spoken a lot around the world about global issues and geopolitics and things going wrong. And I'd love to hear when you talk again about that. Um, but aside from that, do you find there's a sort of balance between those who are smart enough to realise they need to talk to an organisation like Control Risk before a problem happens and those who go, oh, God, this is terrible. It's all gone wrong. Can you come in and
1: sweep up the mess? What do you find the balance? So I think the most um, effective of organisations are the ones that get the balance right between bold ambition and an appropriate degree of prudence. Excessive prudence can lead organisations to be paralysed into inaction because they look at the world from London, Copenhagen, Paris, New York, Chicago, Tokyo, Shanghai, wherever it is, and all they see is risk and peril. Yeah, it's like the captain who won't leave port because the ship might Might. founder. Exactly. And there aren't many of those executives around, but they do exist. And at the other end of the scale, you've obviously got people who have minimised their sense of jeopardy to the point that they are reckless. With other people's other people's money and yeah. in, in extremis with other people's lives, and there is a happy range somewhere between that where organisations uh, understand that the taking of risk is the rocket fuel that drives them forward. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, they do they do it in a way that maximises their chances of success and minimizes the chances of them coming completely unstuck by being ill-prepared. Yeah. And it's it's that contour that control risks as an organization works. And it's a very privileged perch because you see organizations um, making complex decisions and factoring in all sorts of different issues about you know, a particular investment uh, in a complex country, or you see people who have suddenly the the world has changed rather dramatically around them, and they're having to reevaluate. And on occasions, you see people who, for whom their world has just collapsed, something horrible has happened to the business, maybe something horrible has happened to some of the people in the organisation, and you really see people, frankly, at their best and at mm-hmm. their worst in yeah. that situation.
0: And, and I'm always interested in sort of keeping up to, up to date with current kind of issues. And of course, this is just your opinion, but your opinion based on many years of experience. What do you think, sort of what's your view of what's going on in the UK at the moment with something like Brexit and the uncertainty that will probably go on for many years and America with Trump and China and various what, what, what would you give a little sort of in a nutshell of what your view is of what's going on and what we can look forward to or what we need to be aware of?
1: Yeah, I think I think we are going through a period of significant inflection in in what we might call the Western world. So in, in in Western Europe and the United States, it's not by no means confined to those countries, where the the kind of consensus position about how the world works is is being challenged, mm. and some of it is being challenged in a responsible and thoughtful fashion, and some of it is being challenged in a way that is frankly irresponsible. Um, and if we look at what's happening in terms of the uh, huge and sudden urgency around people wanting stuff done about climate and climate change, you see all of that encapsulated. You, the, the, the world, the global economy is facing its most profound challenge I think, in in multiple generations, if not since the Industrial Revolution, in how it deals with this. But around that, there's a lot of ill-informed noise and um, populism that I think debases and compromises the ability of serious people to make serious decisions. Hmm. And the difficulty in a kind of populist political era is that there is a great reluctance to take decisions that people don't like and the great reluctance to take decisions that have any kind of long-term implications. Mm. And that's the contradiction at the centre of so much that vexes the international system at the moment, is the decisions we need to take to reshape the capitalist model for the future require some short-term pain and some long-term planning. And the... The kind of current mood of politics, whether it's as a consequence of democracy or it's a consequence of authoritarian models of government, suggests that nobody's in the mood to take those kind of decisions. And that brings me to the sort of
0: what, what are we missing today? You know, we, we, this, this series is about inspiring leaders and people who've inspired you. Um, just at the time when we have the greatest crisis, certainly in the United Kingdom. Um, And in America, I think there's a huge crisis going on. And in many countries, we seem to be lacking inspiring leaders who are trusted, who have a clear sense of purpose and calling, who want to leave a legacy that the country's better than they found it, Um, and who create a healthy environment rather than a toxic environment with good decisions and emotionally intelligent people and a resilience in the country. It's it's all missing, all the kind of things that we talk about here. at that time, from your perspective, almost making it quite personal, from going from the geopolitical down to the sort of person, who have you found to be inspiring as a leader and what qualities did they have
1: that you've admired over time? It's an interesting question. And just to, just to step back from it, I think I'm more optimistic about the quality of leadership than a lot of other people. But just to qualify that... I think the absence of leadership is very specifically in the political arena at the moment. Yeah. And I think it's for the reasons that I just mentioned that politics has found itself backed into a corner where it's a very unappealing career yeah. for people who are prepared to take a long view and do difficult things. It has become the, it has become the refuge of the sort of soundbite populist, and that's unfortunate. But when I look in business, when I look in the voluntary sector, look in the military, uh, look in a sort of wider kind of civil society, Hmm. you see people of exceptional talent and capability. They just don't opt at the moment yeah. to choose to become politicians. Oh, time and again,
0: I say to CEOs or senior leaders, I say, yeah. you'd be great in politics. I don't want to go in there. Yeah. I mean, just look
1: at the... the to a person, them. people say that. The yeah. idea of a political career is deeply, deeply unattractive. Yeah. But there's no absence of, in my estimation, there's no absence of of kind of leadership. And it's just something of a cliche to say the sort of tail end of 2019... But when you look at the quality of young people who are taking up the mantle of climate change and need to do something about it, it may sound to sort of middle-aged fuddy-duddies like me occasionally a bit shrill and misinformed or naive, but the quality of what they're prepared, the the, the purity of their vision yeah. and their determination to have their voice heard is really reassuring. Yeah, I mean, Greta Thunberg yeah. is the... She's the very obvious and somewhat unusual example of that, mm. but it's not re- re- restricted only to, to Greta Thunberg. There's lots of people out there. And, of course, not all of that is going to resonate. Not all of that is going to persuade um, the kind of power brokers of the world that it's the right thing to do. But I'm I'm very encouraged, and I see business leaders responding to that and starting to think much more radically about changing their business model. Uh, and I think that's real courage. I think yeah. that's real leadership. Could you think of anybody in particular that you've been fortunate enough to advise work
0: with over the years that you're prepared to sort of point him or her out as, or a couple of them that you find inspiring leaders who, who seem to capture the essence of what we've talked about, the qualities that make inspiring leaders?
1: One of the most inspiring... Um, people I have ever had the good fortune to work with and indeed get to know and uh, call a friend is a South African politician called Rolf Meyer. And Rolf was a young cabinet member in the National Party government before the end of apartheid and was one of the first South African politicians to call time on apartheid. Yeah. He then, with the current president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, they were the two architects of the new South African constitution. Um, This sounds like ancient history now, but for many of us, the change that happened in South Africa um, was absolutely extraordinary. And I think history will show it's one of the most extraordinary things that's ever, ever happened. But in particular, he had... He had extraordinary moral courage Mm. to come from that Afrikaans' background, determined view that despite all the unpopularity that was heaped on them, they were were right. And he had an epiphany. He realized that it was wrong. And he didn't just quietly retire thinking that was probably wrong. He then set about doing something about it. And... Uh, endured a lot of criticism and hostility from his community in order to do that and with that one with people listening to this podcast um wanting
0: aspiring to be inspiring leaders yeah. with your knowledge of him what will you pass on to others look here's my advice you know try behaving in
1: this way or having these values, what would, what would you pass on? So it's that, it's that realisation that if you find yourself effectively kind of living a lie, mm. that you need to do something about it.
0: I come across a number of leaders that I coach who have this epiphany. Yeah. And they go, this is not my calling. Yeah. This is making me a lot of money, but I'm, I'm, I'm living a lie. Yeah, Uh, And um, in fact, you know, one of the leaders on one of the other podcasts earlier, she said, look, when you find it clashes with your values, you've got to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, You've either got to change the organization you're in if you can change it, or if not, you have to leave. Uh, And it's uh, another one said it's a bit like when you're dealing with a white collar psychopath. Yeah. Sometimes you can try and change these people, but often it's so ingrained with these people. They'll promise yeah. to change and be a nice person, and, yeah. uh, but it's a bit like the sort of shark in yeah. uh, Nemo that he just can't stop himself trying to <laughs> eat all the other fish. You know, yeah.
1: he's just trying really hard to to be vegan, but he can't. <laughs> <laughs> so if I if I sort of row back from the the sort of world of kind of geopolitics and big yeah. business and just think about. The kind of qualities that are required to run, uh, in my case, a, a medium-sized global consulting firm, uh, it's interesting because you are in those kind of environments, the people who work in your firm are the product. Yeah. They are what your clients and the outside world and the marketplace, that's what they experience and your brand and your reputation is the interaction they have as human beings with other human beings. There's no product to hide behind. It is, it is the quality of the human, the human interaction. They're buying people, aren't they? That, 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 that makes, yes, indeed, that makes the business uh, sustainable and mm. successful. Um, and I always had the mantra at control risks, which I stuck to sometimes. it's It wasn't always successful. But I always used to say that the job of the CEO was when times are good and the business is doing well, my job is to lead from behind, is to let everybody else step forward and do what they do best. And mm-hmm. my job is to enable them to do that. But when things don't go well, when something's gone wrong, then my job is to step forward and lead from the front. Yeah. And I think uh, I set myself that as a mantra I can't hand on heart say that I stuck to it 100 percent of the time because it's actually much more difficult. It's one of those it's one of those easy things to say, hard things to do. Yeah. Um, but I think in in those kind of those kind of people businesses, and I would suggest a wider range of businesses, the sublimation of the male ego, in my case, uh, but the ego generally, to allow other people to be successful and make other people successful. Is the, is the sort of essence of, of leadership but notwithstanding the need that when things for whatever reason go awry or prove more difficult than they otherwise might be then your job is to yeah. that's what you're paid to do is to step forward in that case yeah if I could come in there's uh, one of the reasons we're here today is
0: one of the people you had a big influence on was Johnny Gray who was I knew in the in the army and he was been in control risks and saw you as very much the sort of coach and mentor to him in the way Many CEOs sadly don't do this, but you you do mentor and bring people on and develop them and look for their good and and knock off the sharp edges or give them a gentle boot up the the rear end if they're not getting on. And he he you know looks upon you as a great uh, great inspiration to him, which is why we're talking today. His recommendation, and we're going to be hearing from him on one of the podcasts as well. Um, but it it is interesting the the, the story of the. Um, the film crew who went across to the Isle of Skye and, uh, they, um, they were on this uh, ship with the captains, quite a long journey they were doing and he invited them to the table and and he just said a a prayer. I'm not a particularly religious person. I used to be, but he said a prayer for safe crossing and they all giggled behind their hands and he ignored it. Um, but then later on that night, a storm blew up and, uh, and uh, they, they were all really scared because the ship was being thrown around, water was coming on board and stuff like that. And they went up and they said, you know, go, go and talk to the captain and see if he'll do a prayer for us. And I said, we will you, you know, do a prayer for us to help us, save us. He said, go away. He said, go away. He said, when, when it's calm, I pray. And when it's stormy, I, I sail my ship. And now it's my time to sail the mm. ship. And I think it's those moments that leaders don't step up and mm. sail the ship and don't actually appreciate things and their crew and their mm. team and, and what life brings them in mm. the good times. Mm. Um, and they pray desperately for
1: hope when it's too late. And you guys <laughs> that's come a, in that's to a very to, good analogy. To help. Yeah. I think the story is quite relevant, isn't it? And then completely from a different walk of, walk of life, when I look at an organization like the one I used to run at Control Risk and many others, you are by and large, hiring people who are expert Hmm. in a very particular field of human endeavor. And when they wake up in the morning, what they want to do is go and deploy that expertise to best purpose. What they rarely do is wake up and think, how can I make this organization as successful as possible today? That's not their primary motive. It's not to say they don't think that's important or they don't support that as a goal. But the nature of expertise is that experts want to be expert. Yeah. And there is something about running those kind of organisations where you have to harness that expert imperative, but you have to compensate for the fact that most people in the organisation don't share your primary goal, which is the, su- the the long-term success of the organization. Not saying they don't think it's a worthy thing to do. It's just not what motivates them. It's not what makes their adrenaline flow. And therefore, you've got to work around that. You can't fight that because otherwise the organization wouldn't exist. It is only, in many cases, it is a collection of experts. And it's a form of expertise that the people you're you have as clients and customers don't have. And that's the rationale for why organizations yeah. for expert advisory consulting firms they exist. And the people I, person I think does that best is Mick Jagger. All
0: right, same more.
1: Because if you look at the Rolling Stones, I was born in 1962. The Rolling Stones were it formed hit. in 1962. And I saw them last year at the Olympic Stadium in London and they are on top of their game. 56 years later, they are on top of their game. 57 years later, they're on top of their game. And how is that achievable? Because Mick Jagger knows that he has his colleagues in the Rolling Stones who just want to play drums, play guitar, sing songs. And he has managed to make that a sustainable model Mm. for years and years and years. And when they come on stage, you look at them and you think, you guys are really enjoying this. Yeah. Um, and that is infectious with the audience. And there is a genius in how Jagger has managed to make that make that sustainable. Um, so for all of you out there who are looking for an inspirational speaker for your next management away, I suspect you probably can't afford Mick Jagger. <laughs> but that is what makes you yeah. so um, unusual and different, that you've even come up with uh,
0: that as an example, which I love. And um, other leaders have said to me that, you know, their job is to surround themselves with an army of giants, men and women who are metaphorically two inches taller than them. Um, And I've seen that work incredibly well. But when men and women in leadership positions are so egoful that they don't want to be challenged. I had this in the army where I had a commanding officer who didn't like the next level down challenging him. So he'd just try and undermine us. But the level below that he loved and they all loved him. But he almost didn't want to have any challenge so we were almost all destabilized and unsettled and made to look foolish some of our own making i often made myself look foolish it's not hard (laughs) um but but that was not good because when they moved on there's a vacuum
1: yeah
0: if you haven't got second in command who can easily step up and take over many organizations fall foul and You know, that was part of your job, I'm sure, to have this succession, things like that. But the military are very good at that. Everybody knows as soon as someone's
1: taken out, they practice taking out the leader so that others all have to rehearse. But, but Jonathan, we live in an era where there is a cult of the CEO. Yeah. And we pay CEOs of major public companies extraordinary amounts of money. I mean, possibly less so in Europe than uh, counterparts do in the United States. But what that breeds is an extraordinary sense that these are superhuman people Mm. who single-handedly will transform the fortunes of organisations that by definition are so large and so complex cannot be transformed by a single individual. They have to be led by a team. And yet we live in a kind of society that obsesses around celebrity CEO, mm. superhuman mm. CEO. Mm. And it's and, and given the kind of demographics, the gender demographics of of kind of senior leadership, it tends to be, historically has tended to be men, with all the attendant issues of the kind of male superego yeah. that come into play. And I just think that is profoundly wrong. Yeah. I agree. Um, and I have seen so many organizations that produce a very complicated and in many ways thoughtful risk register of all the things that could come and snare this organization and have very complicated mitigation strategies and the thing that's missing is that they over obsess about a single individual at the top who himself let's call him a him for now uh, starts to believe that propaganda too yeah and it's a ridiculous onus to place on an individual yeah. that they can that they can do this. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't superbly talented and inspirational people out there, but in my experience, they are always only one member of a much larger team. Yeah. But we live in a society that devalues the team and overvalues the individual. And if we look at many of the kind of corporate failures and... Situations where businesses have at one minute appear to be sailing, uh, s- s- sort of riding high, sorry, and then the next minute they're sort of floundering on the rocks. It's nearly always because people have over-obsessed about one individual.
0: And you're so right. And I, I was enjoying reading recently Sean Acor, who does a very good TED talk um, uh, about sort of positive psychology, but he's talking about big potential and stronger together. And it's the power of the team, whereas the, often the American-British kind of approach is the superhero man or woman who alone is just competing for themselves. But then they get into their first job and they actually have to collaborate and they're yeah. just not used to this. And yeah. they'll score points over other people. And I think this whole psychology of relative deprivation, he's earning more than me or doing better than me and then, therefore I'm less. It is very destructive whereas when you get really healthy teams working well together amazing things can be achieved and i think that's really important now, we've got about five minutes uh, left of this conversation. We could talk all day. I'd, mm. I'd love to. But I'd love to just to sort of switch over to, you know, you're now switching your career from being a highly successful CEO <laughs> in an organization and having been in that organization for some 26 years. And now you're going to be a leadership coach, and mentor, and advisor to sort of chairman and CEOs. Um, tell me about this next stage of, of your journey and what you've been enjoying about that.
1: Well, the... The aspect of my, my kind of corporate life, when I look back on it, there are many aspects of it that I, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, that have been unexpected and that I've enjoyed enormously and it's given me the opportunity to travel to places, to meet people uh, that I would never have dreamt I could, ever have, I could ever have had that privilege. But I think the moments where I have felt most on it most sort of at peak performance is when it has just been me and somebody else in the room. There is nothing to help me other than my own wits. And I'm helping somebody unravel a knotty problem that is causing them significant anxiety. And... Or, or, indeed, I am trying to persuade somebody of a course of action that they might otherwise not take. And it could be as simple as, I'd like you to join my firm rather than a competitor. Or it could be trying to persuade some government official in some faraway part of the world not to do all sorts of hostile things to my company that uh, occasionally, uh, occasionally they may choose to do. But it's those high-impact, high-value conversations where you're either helping somebody to achieve clarity and purpose in the face of a lot of anxiety and confusion, or you're trying to persuade somebody, as I say, to take a particular course of action. It's those conversations, those one-on-one conversations, where if I look back now, i probably got the greatest satisfaction. Many other things I've been proud of, mm. but those moments where I suddenly thought, this is, this is only about my ability to make, to shape the outcome. And we've all had conversations that have gone horribly wrong. Yeah, yeah, so we know, yeah. what, we know what... We know what we know doesn't so work. Yeah. But but if you were to give
0: uh, in the last few minutes some tips to those who are listening, when they find themselves in that moment of having to have a courageous conversation or being a really good listener, when they can then summarise what they understand that person's point of view and then ask them some more questions, what would be the, the some tips and techniques well, you'd pass on which you found has worked? It
1: is... That ability to listen with purpose. Um, I remember hearing uh, it was. I think it was in an investment bank where somebody was asked about how how things work around here, and he said, "Oh, you've got to be clear. We don't listen here. We just reload." Oh yeah. And I think that tells you everything about actually proper listening skills much more difficult than people think. So that's the the sort of base point, but it's also a willingness to take a risk in the conversation,
0: Mm.
1: where you feel you need to make a breakthrough, where you need to uh, uh, arrest somebody's chain of thought and move them in a different direction. And it's not about telling, it's not about hectoring, it's not about lecturing, it's about listening, 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 then listening some more, but knowing when to make that bold intervention brilliant Richard we come to the end
0: of our time Richard Fenning it's been a fascinating conversation we could talk much more but I can see why in your next step of your of your career that uh, I think you will be an outstanding leadership coach and, and mentor to people and they'll be very fortunate to have your well, wisdom That's yourself. very
1: kind thank you thank you very much indeed. <laughs>